talk through Genesis 22 today uh, and how this is part of the story. It's part of the story leading up to Jesus coming. And so it's great that, uh, that we can take this time to, to focus, to really focus on, you know, the, what's happened leading up to it, to connect with it, to let our hearts actually be placed there too and realize what we would feel in that moment in those situations and realize it's part of our story too. And so with the Advent, we have a reading that we do together as a community. And so if you, you don't have to stand, but you have to recite with me. We're going to put up Luke 1, 68 to 69. And we're going to read this together as a family. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people he has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David. I'm sorry if I blocked you from seeing that. Um, but this is our scripture that we're going to continue to read every week as we continue through uh, our Advent season. And so, as we get close to Christmas, in my house, there's some anxious people. And the waiting is really brutal for them. Um, <laughs> Oh, and like, we can think this, like waiting as a kid, like I remember being a kid and waiting, like the weekends felt so long, like they felt like they were so far away, and then summer felt like ancient, and so you ask my kids, like, hey, we're going to do that on the weekend, they act like, you know, it's, they're the lady at the end of the Titanic movie, where it's like, it's been 71 years since we got to the weekend, we're like, okay kids, stop being so dramatic. And they're like, it's almost impossible to get to the weekend. Uh, they don't and then they feel like by the Lord's grace, they actually make it to the weekend. It's like, we didn't think it was going to come, but hallelujah, we made it. And so you tell them we're going on vacation. And they're like, S you're like, oh, sweet. They're like, when? And we're like, yeah, in like four months. They're like, you got to be kidding me. What do you, that's forever. That's like a million bajillion hours is what Jude says. Bajillion is officially a word in our house. And so it's like, why don't you love us? Why couldn't you make it tomorrow or right now? And so waiting is hard. And I remember like at Bible school uh, during the first semester, you're not allowed to date. And so I met Kim and I was like, yeah, she's, she's, she's hot. And so I was like, she's beautiful. <laughs> And not that, like, we had a good friendship to start with. I loved her. Well, I guess I can't, I'm confessing things, sorry. Um, but you're not allowed to date the first semester. And so about, like, October, we kind of knew that we liked each other, but you had to, like, mm, wait until January till you know, you can make it official. And so, and then for those who know our story a bit, like, we got here and our house in Eston hadn't sold. And so... We waited for it to sell, and like we had a rental here for like nine months, and so you're just kind of just time's ticking by, and you, the house hasn't sold a nest in, and it's actually around this time it was like it felt pretty pretty dark, like or lonely, or it felt like forever, like the, the like a house getting a home felt like it was so far away, like we didn't have somebody in our house in Eston renting, it was empty in the winter not good. And so I'm from Saskatchewan. And then you're like halfway till like we have to be out of our rental. And you're just like, what's, how's this going to look? Like, how's this going to happen? And so I remember like anytime the phone rang, it was like, oh, like you froze. Like, is this the call? Is this someone want to look at our house? Or like if we had a Facebook message, we're like, oh, is it somebody who wants to like to buy our house? I'm like, oh, it's just mom. Like, whatever. And so, and then, and so, like, do you want to buy the house? <laughs> They're like, no. <laughs> but 
and Kim and I, we would look at each other, you know, you know when you know what they're thinking, but you don't want to ask, like, sometimes to start a conversation, you're like, yeah, so what are you thinking about? Yeah, we did not ask that in our house, because we knew what each other was thinking. We're like, we just, it was just tense. The waiting was tense. Like, we could feel it. It just felt forever. And then, you know what, at that moment, the, it, it finally came to fruition, like our house sold, and then we were able to look, and then we were able to buy, and you're like, oh yeah, that wasn't so bad, so bad. but you know what, the waiting and the anticipation that makes it feel, you feel the weight of it, you feel the weight of what you're going through. And so, we have a story in Genesis 22, where you feel for someone who is waited, and not just who waited for a son, but someone who is waiting, like a world, a nation that's waiting for the son. But then also in this shocking story, we, we almost tend to say like, something ha- like Ab- God asked Abraham to do something crazy. And we're like, like, what did God just ask Abraham to do? Like, that, that, that seems kind of weird. And so, let's take a look at what's happening leading up to this section. Uh, the world at this time is in a pretty bad place. Uh, the sin is rampant. That, pro- like that promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden that he was going to crush the serpent's head, it feels like that's not going to happen. It's, it feels long. Like it's, it feels so far away. And people have been waiting for this to come, and it doesn't feel like it ever will come. And so what happens is that sometime after Adam and Eve, God speaks to Abraham. And so their relationship began back in chapter 12 when Abraham left Ur where he lived because God promised him that he would bless him and all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, through his line, through the son that he's going to give him. So Abraham, to that point, he had no relationship with the one true God that we're aware of. None. But he heard him. He had this promise. So I'm going to follow. So the people who lived in Ur in those times, they were bad people. They were pagans. They worshipped many gods. But the one true God spoke to Abraham. So he followed God's leading in his life. And he left and went to the land of Canaan. God's promise to Abraham didn't come to fruition right away. You know what? Sometimes we feel like that. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm following God. Here we go. And we expect the promises to come pouring down. But sometimes it feels like they're far away and that we got to wait. And so this is what was happening to Abraham. In fact, it was many years away, but God promised Abraham he would be faithful to his word. He promised him. And we read about Abraham, he faltered in many ways. But God was always faithful to his promise, always faithful to him. Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. But the issue that was troubling for Abraham was that for God's promise to come to fruition, he would have to have a son. And God had told him his offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. No one can count the dust. So your family would be so large that it cannot be counted. It's going to be huge, Abraham. It's going to be massive. And a large family in that time, it meant status in Abraham's time. So God was promising him a life that was like the greatest life imaginable. And we're like, you know, he was going to get all these, these kids. And he was going to be like, this is the greatest life. I'm going to be so rich. And we hear about that. And we're like, I'm going to get all these kids. And I'm going to be so poor because they cost money. But for Abraham, it was like, no, this is the life. Like, you have all these kids. And it's going to be like, yeah, this is going to be great. At this time, it was like the greatest life imaginable. But Abraham still, he had no children. And he, his wife, Sarah, they were getting a little bit old. Not like 40, like Genesis 21 tells us Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. They called him Isaac, which means son of laughter, because 
You know, it's just funny. Like 100 years old, and they have a kid that's just funny. And they seem to understand that too. So we'll name him Isaac. Um, Think about it. Like Abraham and Sarah were both 100 when Isaac was born, which meant that year of their birthdays, both Abraham and Isaac both got diapers. And so it's kind of crazy. Like 100 years old, they both got diapers. It's amazing. But Jude, our, our third boy, his middle name is Isaac because we had two boys and we're like, yeah, let's go for a third. And then we got through the ultrasound. Kim was 100% sure Jude was going to be a girl. And we're there and she's preparing, buying pink things and stuff like that. And we go into the ultrasound. They're like, do you want to know? And we're like, well, you know, we waited for the first two. Maybe we'll wait for this one. But maybe, maybe write it down on a piece of paper and we'll find out if we feel like we should puts on a piece of paper in an envelope. We walk out of the hospital in the parking lot. Boom, Christmas Day. We open up that envelope, and we look, and we see it's a boy, and we laugh. And so Jude, Isaac, Everett, Crow. So you now you know his middle names. But 100 years old, and decades upon decades of waiting, God's promise to come true. And here was Isaac, the son of promise. It happened. He's come. And it feels like the story should end. But it doesn't. It keeps going. We can see that Abraham's understanding of God at this time is starting to grow. He's starting to, you know, he's starting to be more confident in this relationship with him. He even calls God at the end of chapter 21, El Olam, the everlasting God, the forever God, the God of eternity. He's like, this is the one. Everybody else has got it wrong. In Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham's faith reaching perhaps the strongest point of any person recorded in Scripture. But Abraham really isn't even the main character of this story. He's not. It's not even Isaac. This is a story of God and his love as he makes provision for his people. And now, let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis 22. If you don't, it will be up here on the screen, um, and we'll work through it. All right. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Here am I is not just like this Hebrew like, word for hello. It is actually a way of saying, I am ready, to, I'm ready for your command. He's like, boom, I'm ready for your command. I am here. It's not like, oh, hello. Yes, I see you, God. It's like, I'm ready for your command. It's a sign of surrender. It's the guy Abraham saying, here I am. And to be frank, I find this pretty remarkable. Like, considering every time God has called Abraham up to this point to ask him to leave something good or something impossible, like, he's asked him to do something like that. And I'll be honest, if God, if he said, you know, Jeremy, and I'd be like, ugh. Well, like, I can't, like, screen him or anything like that. He can see me. And so it's like, oh, God's calling again. But every time, Abraham's like, here I am. Here I am. Abraham says, here I am, because he trusts God. And that makes me sound like I don't trust God. I do trust God. But the difference in a life of drudgery and a life of joy is whether you trust Jesus. Just like the old hymn says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord." I heard this quote. It says, "'You show me a happy Christian, and I'll show you one that has learned to trust, you show me a faltering Christian, and I'll show you one who has yet to learn how good God is and how committed he is to us. That's heavy. But here he is, Abraham. Here am I. He's ready. He trusts him. He's everlasting God. 
Then Genesis 22 to 3 continues, and it says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice them there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And then it just feels like, right? Everything just grinds to a screeching halt. Just like, like, what did you just ask him to do? Scholars tell us that the language here, like it suddenly, it actually slows down dramatically, the language put in this. Like the story is going on, like at this clip with Abraham, it's just like boom, boom, boom. But this kind of just like everything just slows down. This child represented everything to Abraham. Everything, everything that he was hoping for, looking for. This was the child of promise, God. Like this is the child you promised. This is what like we left everything for. We left the land. All their hopes and all their dreams and affections, they were upon this child. The word for son in Hebrew is Ben. And this word son is used so many times in this section. It's not just Isaac, Isaac, Isaac. It's like your son, your son. Take the one, your son. And this is the first mention of love in the Bible. And it is the love between a father and a son. And this is amazing foreshadowing. And it connected with the idea of the sacrificial offering for the son. He's already preparing the story, already showing us what's going to happen. And this is unbelievable. Like the first occurrence of love does not come from the context of a husband or a wife and a wife, or a mother or a child, nothing against that, but a father and a son. This is foreshadowing to what the ultimate picture of love is going to be. This is what love is about. This is the ultimate picture of love. This is the first time you're going to hear about love? Yeah, it's when I sent my son. God says, the son you have been waiting anxiously for, the son I promised you. Yeah, you take him and sacrifice him. You know what would be hard? After all that waiting, like for that house, like this house that we now live in, if God was like, you know that house I got for you, I provided for you? Yeah, it's really awesome. It's nice and warm. It's cozy. It's got enough room. Yeah, he's like, on Tuesday, yeah, light that thing on fire. (laughs) So (laughs) Yahweh provides, hashtag fire for Jesus. Hashtag Jesus told me to do it. Just kidding. He didn't. He wouldn't tell us to do something like that. Um, You see, this offering, this offering that was going to happen wasn't one of atonement. A sacrifice that is intended to cover our sins. That wasn't what it was. This is a burnt offering, which is an offering that gives of the first to God and says, you deserve my first. You deserve my best. You deserve my everything. But what seems crazy is this asks of him. Abraham, like Abraham's asked to do this. And Abraham, he just seems kind of like unfazed. And the Bible is pretty good at telling us like when somebody's feeling emotion, right? They would say, and he felt pain or he was angered. But it just says, Abraham just chopped some wood. Yeah, and he just went up the mountain. Like why? Like why does Abraham just go along with this? Like why is he just, why is he just doing this? At this time, let me tell you what the world looked like. It was common practice for families to sacrifice their firstborn to their God. It was the thing to do. They believed it helped them in their relationship with God. They believed it was, their, their, it was what their God required them to do. Give it their first. 
It was the, what made them right before their God, and it was, it was all good to do this. This was what they did in this time to their God. When you hear of that, we also need to understand that Abraham, you know what? He did not have a Bible. Abraham was kind of in the midst of the story. He was in the very beginning. He's a huge part of the Torah. He is the, in the first book, the first handful of chapters of the Bible. So there weren't like really any early editions of Genesis that were hitting the shelves. Like, and like he couldn't just Google Yahweh, tell me about this God. He doesn't know that all this points to Jesus quite yet, but he is learning that it will. He was living out what we're reading. He has no frame of God. He is learning what this God is all about and who he is. He was called out of a pagan nation by this God. There are many gods in this pantheon, but he was called by this, this one true God. So you see what Abraham does have a frame, uh, for, frame of work for in this context, context in which he is living. He is thinking that this is normal for God to ask of this. This is normal. So when he is asked, hey, I want you to go up to the mountain and sacrifice Isaac, he's like, okay. It's just what God's ask of. And we think, like, did he just go and do that? Like, what, what do you mean? He just seems like to just be like, okay with it. This is normal. In the beginning, though, when Adam ate of that fruit, right? And we talked about this. He should have died. But he didn't. But God said that death will happen. But now it's this, like, this slowly dying. And you see God spared Adam at that moment because he wanted to redeem them. Adam as the first son, Adam as the firstborn should have died. But God wanted to redeem not just Adam, but all after him. So this thought of firstborn sacrifice, it's kind of been felt through people. But God didn't desire the firstborn of earthly humans to be sacrificed in order to make things right. He showed it in the garden, and he's going to show it on this mountain. God was foreshadowing that there will be a sacrifice that is good once and for all for everyone, and it will be his son and the extension of him, someone who's fully God and fully man. That was the promise, and this is what everybody was waiting for. So when God tells Abraham to take your son, you take your only son, your son Isaac, whom you love, this echoes John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the story continues. Genesis 22, 4 to 8. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the, fi the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham's faith and foresight, you know, they're kind of staggering in this. The New Testament gives us kind of more insight into what Abraham's frame of mind is here. Paul writes in Romans 4 that he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith. And gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God, what God had promised, he was going to be able to do. He was fully convinced. Whatever God had promised, he's going to be able to do it. Right? He's everlasting God. 
Abraham was fully convinced that because God had promised that a nation was to be born out from Isaac's bloodline, that even if Abraham sacrificed, sacrificed him, God would raise him somehow from the dead. That is why he says, we are going over and we will be back. He just believed. Somehow we're coming back. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. It helps us be convinced of this. It says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, Your offspring will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead, therefore. He received him back, figuratively speaking. He believed. Just believed. Not only was Abraham's faith so fully placed in God's power that he expected God to be able to raise Isaac from the dead after he was sacrificed, he felt strong enough to say, we will be back. We will be back. It feels like Abraham, by the grace of God, is somehow to like, understand the idea of that God will provide a sacrifice himself. He's kind of understanding, I think God's going to provide the sacrifice himself. We have been promised much. And some of you, you know, you maybe had these promises spoke over your life. Or maybe as you read the Bible and you see some of these promises, or you just in your relationship and walking with Christ, you're like, Where, when is this going to happen? You know what the, uh, the hardest part is? Waiting. But waiting is the best part in the same because along the line of waiting, we're actually being taught. And as we wait and we hear upon the Lord, he's actually building character with us, within us. And he's actually showing us, it's not like you who are going to provide, but me. So as we have these promises, and like, oh, where are you? These things feel forever. We can look at these stories and we can know he's providing, even as we speak. As we see here, the Lord is good with his promises. He's preparing you, and you can trust that he is Lord. He has it under control. He is looking after you. We can see on this journey that when Isaac asks, where is the offering? Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And as we journey, as we walk, and as we think about, well, God, where are you? We just need to remember, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. That was something we said to ourselves. We're like, the Lord will provide. He's going to provide. It's going to happen. I can't see it. I don't understand it. I know that you know, it, something needs to happen, but I know he's provided in the past, and I know he'll continue to provide. And so we kind of get a snapshot of what Abraham's thinking of as he's journeying. The Lord will provide. He's remembering the promises of God. He was probably recounting the encounter in Genesis 15 where God took responsibility for both sides of the covenant. This is important. Like what drove Abraham up the mountain was not the strength of his character. It was not Abraham saying, I can do it, but God is faithful. He's like, I can't do this. I can't go up to the mountain. I can't sacrifice my son, but God is faithful. God is faithful. The only thing that can drive us onward as a, as a body, as a believer, as an individual, as a husband, as a father, maybe in ministry, maybe in your work, maybe in your family, maybe through difficult times, maybe through financial hardship, maybe through whatever you're going through. It's not our strength of our character. It's an unwavering conviction in the goodness of that God has provided. And he's got his promises for you. 
Even the youth shall falter. The strongest young men shall fall. But those who wait upon the Lord will have their strength renewed. Not our character. Simply his. Then we begin to reach the climax of the story. Genesis 22, 9-18 says, When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. We saw this picture up here uh, as they were reading, and it's just after um, Isaac is taken off, and we can see the knife, and we can see there's just this look of just up to the Lord, probably thanking him. We see the, the sacrifice down there. Like, kudos to Isaac. If Isaac, like, he, if he was strong enough to carry the wood up the mountain, he definitely would have been strong enough to overcome his father, a frail old man. Scholars say he's anywhere between 15 and 30. But here he is, Isaac. He's crawling up onto the altar, trusting God and his dad. Like, like would our teenagers do that? I don't know. The only way Isaac would do this, though, is he had inherited trust in God from his dad. He heard his dad talking about him all the time, saw him live it out. He saw what has happened, heard the stories, I'm sure, of the journey up to this moment. And his daddy's trust in God caught fire in his heart to Isaac. Isaac trusted his dad. Isaac trusted his dad's faith in his God. This is the kind of faith that's caught, not taught. Parents, but especially fathers, this begs the question, will how you live and how you give and how you obey teach your children to trust God? All of my fathers out there, this is our challenge. All, for me, this is my challenge. For everyone, this is our challenge. Not, not to sacrifice your child, but to teach your child well. To instill faith in them so that when they grow up and they trust the Lord, they know it was, man, my dad taught me well. My parents taught me well. Fathers, I'm not downplaying like everyone. Like for, for me in my house, like I'm naturally the leader. My wife has a huge job in raising our kids, but I know they, they, my boys, they look up to me. Leading them to follow Jesus isn't a task uh, or a simply a responsibility or something I take lightly. It is my complete joy to lead them to Jesus, to lead them to the Father. I tell my kids this. I would rather you serve God in Africa than be my neighbor and not have a relationship with him. My 
job, my joy is to tell my kids so that they can see me live out my faith and so that faith will be instilled in them so that they will trust and they will do what God has called them to do. Just as Isaac obeyed and Abraham raised up the knife to sacrifice him, God said, stop. And everyone like, kind of exhaled. Wow. And then it goes on to say something interesting. Now God knew Abraham loved him. Like, what, like now God knew that Abraham loved him? Like, doesn't he know, like, everything? Isn't he a God? Like, like they, he said at the beginning, this is a test. Like, so who's actually being tested? I heard it explained like this. There's this cognitive knowledge, and then there's this, like, this experiential knowledge. Like, I know I love Big Macs. Confession, you can judge me later. <laughs> like, I I, like, when I go to McDonald's, I want a Big Mac. And so, I know I love Big Macs. So when I go to McDonald's, I don't go, you know what? I love Big Macs. There's the, the bomb.com. Um, I'm like, well, but maybe I'm going to get chicken nuggets. No, I want to experience that love for the Big Mac. Like, I want to pick it up and then, the, like, the burger slide out and then to pick it up and put it back in. And then, <laughs> and then, like, take a bite of it and be like, oh, man, my hands smell for, like, the next three days. Like, there's that aroma of McDonald's that stays with you. That's the aroma of love. And so, like... <laughs> I love Big Macs. Intellectually, I know this, but I want to experience it. And God seems to be this way, like not about Big Macs. He just gave me that gift. It seems like he is saying, I may know the future and I may know your heart, but I want to experience the journey, the intimacy. He wants to know experientially, is Abraham really someone who loves me? Because right, he called him out with a promise. But now he wants to know, does he really love my promise? Does he really love the promise of a blessed future? Does he really love what I can do for him? Does he really like what lies ahead? Or does he love me? And so this is the question of where does your treasure lie? Does it lie with the Lord? Or, what he can, or does it lie with what the Lord can do with for you? What we see in this passage, what we can let our hearts rest is that we can love him freely because he foreshadowed a deep love for us through a promise he has made. This offering made sense to Abraham and he was willing to do it. He was saying, you deserve my first. You deserve my first. I love you. I love you. And then the story ends. But it ends like this with God providing the sacrifice. When you name a place, I'm closing here, and we're going to take communion. When you name a place, it's extremely significant in Hebrew culture what you name it, because it encapsulates or summarizes the significance of what has taken place there. It's interesting that they call this place the Lord provides, not Abraham obeyed. They call it the Lord provides. You see, something more important than Abraham's impressive obedience is demonstrated to us here. And it was God's commitment to us. For Advent, our family is doing this thing where we are giving our kids like hints about a promise that we made to them. Like, we're going to do something awesome. It's going to be amazing. We're going to do it on this day. You're not sure what it's going to be, but it's going to be great. And we should provide hints to them throughout the week of when it's going to be. 
And so they're like, oh, they get a hint. Like, what's it going to be? I don't sure. It's just for this promise to come to be fulfilled. So they are waiting and waiting and waiting for this event to happen. And each clue gives them an idea of what it's going to look like, what this promise looks like. The clues in this passage, they're a huge hint to what the promise in Genesis 3 is going to look like. In this chapter, we see Isaac was a long-promised child. We know the Messiah was promised from the time of the garden, later in the promise of a greater Moses, and then through the prophets. We see that Isaac was a miracle child. Sarah and Isaac were very old when they had Isaac. Truly a miracle. Jesus was born. No human father. A miracle. Isaac was a beloved child. And we know what John 3.16 says about Jesus. Isaac was obedient to his father. Jesus submitted to his father's will. Isaac carried the wood on his back up the hill for his own sacrifice. And we know Jesus carried that cross, beaten and bludgeoned for his, to his own sacrifice. Then the story changes. There was a substitute. Isaac was speared and a ram, or Isaac was spared, not speared. And a ram found nearby was his substitute. Jesus was not spared, but he became our substitute. The sacrifice was on a fill, fill. <laughs> Phil Collins. The sacrifice is on a hill. In fact, there is good reason to believe that this hill was in the same area and perhaps the same hill where Mount Zion sits. These mountains of Moriah were right outside of Jerusalem, and scholars tell us that these mountains were precisely where Calvary would have been. So in other words, on this very mountain where Jesus died, a drama was enacted a thousand years earlier. Abraham plays the part of God. Isaac played the part of Christ. But only up until that moment... That God stops the sacrifice and points to the lamb caught in the thorn bushes, caught by his horns, not by his body. Because if he was caught by his body, he wouldn't be unblemished. But caught by his horns, an unblemished sacrifice. Then a thousand years later, Jesus would walk up that same mountain. But this time, no substitute lamb would be provided because he himself was that unblemished lamb. This story isn't about a cruel God, but a loving one. A God who will carry out his promise. His heart is to see his children. He created to come know him. And I'll call the worship team up, and then we're going to get ready for communion. The story of Abraham's life is one of agonized waiting. It feels long. For the promised land, it felt long. For a child in the pinnacle of his faith, for a positive outcome to this long journey, possibly the final one with his beloved son up this mountain. If Abraham felt hopeless or angry or confused or anguished during this three-day journey to the mountain, like we didn't know it, we couldn't tell. But we feel the pain of Abraham as we read this story and his waiting. It seemed like Abraham got what he was waiting for. He felt like he got it. He got his son. That's what he was waiting for. But the promise of a life with Christ, with God, is greater than anything we can experience here on earth. And Abraham realizes this. He's like, my son is amazing. God, you are worth more than him. You are actually what I was waiting for. We feel that a Christmas with family where there's no fighting or quarreling uh, will be the most perfect, fulfilling Christmas, but that pales in comparison to a life with Christ. He is what we are waiting for. He fulfills everything that we waited for. What Abraham was waiting for was a Savior. And he knew God would provide that Savior. 
The waiting for this promise to be fulfilled in the form of a savior was long. Over the many years between Isaac and the arrival of the promise, they regularly forgot. But Advent is more than waiting for Christmas. It's about celebrating the waiting is over. The Messiah has come. But it also reminds us that he is promising to come again. And so, he came. His son, Jesus. And he died on this cross for us as that ultimate sacrifice. That one in this story that was foreshadowing to the one that was going to come. And he fulfilled it. And so what we do today, we do in remembrance of that waiting. That waiting for that Messiah. And we fill with, I, or with Abraham what he was waiting for. I'm going to call Mike down and we're going to prepare to take our communion. If you're new here, how we do it is I'll stand on one side, Mike will stand on one side, we'll both have the elements, and then as the song begins, um, then you can come down, you can grab your emblems, then you can take them back to your seat, and then we'll partake them together. But before we do this, I just want to pray. Father, we thank you that you came as the ultimate sacrifice, that everything is pointing towards you. Lord, that you are that perfect spotless ram. Lord, that you longed to have relationship with us, that you longed to make this right, even though we made it wrong. And we thank you that the anticipation is no more, that we can have relationship with you, that the waiting is over, but there's also now knowing that you're coming again. And so we wait some more. But with the promises we can hold on to. So we thank you. We thank you for this story that shows us your love for us. Amen.